0: It's great to be with you at Signal Church this week. It's my privilege to be here. And we are in some very unusual and crazy times, aren't we? And, uh, but I want to remind you of something. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior from there. He's coming back soon, and our citizenship, our final home, is there. We're going to make it. We're going to get through all of this stuff. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles, whatever form you have, to Isaiah chapter 6, whatever form of media you have before you, and I invite us to read Invite you to read along with me silently as I look at Isaiah chapter 6, this very, very well known passage. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Just envision this high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Invite us to for a moment of prayer together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is truth that we need so desperately in this dark world. And it tells us about ultimate things and it tells us what is true. And so we ask that in these moments that you would open our hearts and our understanding and our minds. That you would even awaken our imagination. That our imagination might be properly used and guided by your truth revealed here in Scripture. And that uh, you would do all that is on your heart in us in these moments. That you would transform our perspective where it needs transformation. That you would bring encouragement where we need encouragement. You would fortify, strengthen us, and meet us By the power of your sovereign Holy Spirit. And so we entrust these sacred moments to you to do all that is on your heart. And we pray that you would accomplish much good in us through this. In the glorious and holy name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Reggie White. If you followed football for long, then you will recognize that name. He was the leading sack, Uh, he was the sack leader of the NFL. That doesn't mean that he carried a bag around. What that means is that he was the one who would tackle the quarterback while the quarterback still had the football more than anyone else. And uh, so he struck terror in the hearts of quarterbacks and of many in the NFL. and Reggie also was a Jesus follower, a very devoted Jesus follower. But one day it was preseason, and during preseason what would happen is that you'd have a lot of rookies coming in who are trying out for a position on the team. They want, like everything, this is their life's dream, to make a posi- get a position on a team. On the other hand, you have the veterans who are there, And they would very much like to keep their position on the team. But they have to go through this very challenging preseason scrimmaging as they're evaluated in their skill level and their commitment and contribution potential to the team. And so there's a lot of tension, as you can imagine. And so in this one play, Reggie, who was on defense and a rookie on the offensive line, they collided and their face masks got stuck together, something very unusual, very rare, but it happened. And they couldn't get them apart. They finally had to take the helmets off. But before that happened, the rookie was saying, taking the name of Jesus and using it in the most vile ways. And this wasn't working well for Reggie. And so Reggie said, don't talk about Jesus that way. Please don't talk about Jesus that way. Don't talk about Jesus. And the rookie took the challenge and was talking about Jesus in even more profane ways. So they finally got them apart. They got their helmets back on and now they had opportunity for the offense to go and have a huddle and the defense to have a huddle as well to talk through their strategy. But when the defense got back to talk about their defensive strategy, Reggie wasn't there. They looked, and he's still in a four-point stance on the line. They said, Reggie, come on back, come on back. And he just kept shaking his head, looking forward and saying, Jesus is coming, and I don't think he's ready. Jesus is coming, and I don't think he's ready to be continued. What we see in this passage is that he Isaiah begins by saying that in the year that King Uzziah died. Why is that important? It's important because for some 52 years, Uzziah had been the king of Israel. And now he dies. And so there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty about the future and the future of government. Not unlike our own times right now, where there's a lot of unrest and a lot of division and a lot of tension uh, going on in our own nation. And so what Isaiah uh, is trying to convey here is that uh, something needed to happen that was going to resolve this tension, and, and it was very unexpected. Isaiah needed to see a vision of God, and he didn't even know that. And that may be the same for us today. We don't even realize that one of the most relevant things that can happen, one of the most practical things that can happen for us in a time of crisis and struggle and conflict is to see God have a fresh view of who our God is. This one who has designed our very DNA and has ordained our days so that we would have loving relationship with Him and glorify Him But it's my sense of things that many people treat God as if He's just some unimportant afterthought at best, and they do not realize that seeing God is the greatest event that we will ever face, the greatest event possible. And they do not realize that all life long we need to be investing every moment and experience in preparation to meet God. And I wonder if most people do not realize that this event, this meeting with God is more certain than death or taxes. They do not realize that this meeting with God is the final great divide after which they will go either to heaven or to hell. And it is my impression that many of us on this planet are deeply interested in our own plans. I see that in my own life, unfortunately, all too often. But we have little or no interest in the God who made us for Himself. Why? Well, because sin has blinded us to God. And we naturally live for self rather than truly for God. And sin shows up in that we neglect our eternal souls for the pursuit of our temporary, often meaningless, goals. And so Isaiah saw the Lord. And where was the Lord? We see here in Isaiah 6 that he was sitting on a throne. and Actually, the most important throne there is. There is no higher court of appeal than this authority that Isaiah is seeing. The local municipal court, the state court, the supreme court, these are absolutely insignificant at this level. This throne is the final one before which we must all eventually stand and give an account. And so he saw that he was high and lifted up. God is the exalted one. Can you envision the shock of seeing this cosmic scene, this majestic, glorious being on the throne, the scene of scenes? And way beyond the glory and the majesty of any earthly king or person. Can you imagine how your adrenaline would surge? It's it's more than being at the top of the highest roller coaster in the world at this staggering supernatural scene suddenly coming into view before you. And we see that the train of His robe filled the temple. His glory was filling the temple. Why? Why? Because He is the King of endless glory. The cosmic pyrotechnics and light show were a display of the same Shekinah glory that was displayed at Mount Sinai and in Solomon's temple. This was the sure sign that God was present. The lights were on. God was in the house. And Isaiah saw seraphim standing above the throne. This is the upward look part two, that seraphim are only clearly mentioned in this one passage in the Bible. We do read about cherubim that seem a lot like the seraphim, and if you were to ask me the difference, I couldn't tell you. But seraphim are gloriously bright, angelic creatures I say angelic creatures because they are a, a unique order of special or a special type of angel. The term seraph means burning ones. And the seraphim are the burning ones who fly closest to the infinite fiery abyss of the holiness of God on display in his presence. And it would appear that they are so close to His fiery holiness that they are on fire themselves as a result. In Hebrews chapter 1 we read, He makes His angels winds and His ministers, speaking of the angels, flames of fire. Do you ever think about angelic beings in that way? That they're, they're on fire. At least the seraphim themselves. And in the book of Daniel, we read, Daniel 7, 9 through 10, as I look, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was what? Fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. It's like his chariot of judgment a stream of fire a river of fire of holy fire issued and came out before him a thousand thousands served him and 10,000s time 10,000 stood before him the court sat in judgment and the books were open and so the fire mentioned here is the fire of God's holiness it is fire that consumes all sin and impurity. It has to do that. It cannot coexist with sin. And Isaiah records in Isaiah 33:14, "Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? This is the very holiness of God on display. This consuming fire and everlasting burning is God's holiness that cannot tolerate our sin. And this is why only Jesus can remove our sin so perfectly that we are able to stand in God's holy presence and be totally immune. Not be touched at all by it. Be impervious to it. Not be consumed by it. And in Hebrews 12, 29 we read, For our God is a consuming fire. And the seraphim have three sets of wings. With two wings, they cover their eyes. Because even perfect beings of the highest order of creation cannot bear to look directly into the uncreated light of God. I'll just give you... I'll give you a for instance on this, an example. Please don't do my example, but I'm going to give you an example. Imagine trying to stare directly into the sun for just one minute. Staring directly into the glory of the sun for one minute. Don't ever try it. You'll never see again. And yet there are stars out there that God has created that are billions of times the size of our little sun. And then realize that God's holy glory is infinite in magnitude and duration. So He can only allow us to look at a a limited manifestation of it, a pin drop of it, and even that can kill us. Remember how Moses asked to see God's glory and God said, okay, essentially God said, I'll let you see traces of my glory where I just was, but not full full octane glory because no one can see me and live. And so even the most glorious angels must cover their eyes and God created them specifically for this environment. And so those That set of wings is just for them in that high altitude of His holiness. And then with two wings, they cover their feet. My best sense of this is that their feet represent the recognition that they're creatures in the presence of the infinite uncreated One. And so there is a modesty or a a covering that is appropriate. It is proper decor and protocol in the divine presence. And then with two wings they fly, which is the part that isn't very surprising to us. That's what we think of typically when we think of wings. But seraphim are absolutely obsessed with the holiness of God. And seraphim have been gifted and entrusted with seeing God's holiness on a level that no other created being can endure. And they are impassioned to scream out, to declare, to proclaim at full emphatic volume that God is even more perfect and beautiful and awesome and wonderful than any of the rest of us are capable of grasping. These seraphim, trust me, these seraphim are not bored with their job. They're not like looking at their, you know... They're pulling out their phone to see what time it is. Let's see, only 2,649 more holies to go before next shift. None of that. They have the best view of God in all of creation. And the seraphim have the perfect job of declaring God's perfection to the rest of creation. And they have arguably the most exciting, most sacred, most glorious, most frightening, yet exhilarating task in creaturedom. That of being the official announcers of God's glory. And they have the dream job because they're absolutely intoxicated with the mind-blowing beauty. The very source of infinite, perfect beauty and unending waves of purest, ecstatic bliss and joy and perfection hit them wave after wave of beauty of God that's perfect. And they cannot help but ceaselessly ceaselessly proclaim that God is holy, holy, holy. So we see that seraphim are the worship leaders of heaven. Okay, what does holy mean? The Word tends to bore us. We don't get much out of that word a lot of times. Well, when we speak of holy angels or holy saints or holy apostles, we mean that these are the ones who have been set apart, singled out, to represent God's pure purpose and to carry out His righteous will in heaven and on earth. They are devoted to God's pure use. Holy means simply set apart from the common for sacred use. However, this term goes into a quantum leap when it is applied to God, who is uniquely holy. When we say that God is holy, we are recognizing that He alone is uniquely, infinitely set apart. He's in His own class, a class of one. There is an infinite chasm between His infinite, uncreated, perfect being and all else because everything else is created. And He alone is Creator. And we are acknowledging that God alone is the absolute and eternal and infinite perfection that can neither be added to nor diminished. And after all these millennia of these perfect angels being in His presence in heaven... None of them have any suggestions for improvement. Everything He does is perfect. As the infinite One, He cannot improve or get better, and no deficiency can ever be discovered. And so another key aspect of what the seraphim are shouting when they say, holy, 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 is this. Are you ready? They're also shouting this. Wow! 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 They are saying that God is the only one in the perfect transcendent infinitude class. They have no higher word than holy that will express the endless facets and waves of revelations of God's infinite beauty and delight and perfections, so they do not cease to cry out, holy, 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 day and night. And in light of this, do you see how I, how we can be so oblivious even when we worship We can forget and fall into a trap of worshiping something very, very small in our minds. A very small view of God. It's not worthy of God. And not the one who is, wow, wow, wow. You see how seraphim might love to set us straight? so that we worship God with the absolute passion and reverence and intensity and excitement and fervor that His glorious perfections call for, commensurate with what they see of God, what they know of God. If we're bored with worship, who sees most clearly? The angels or us? They're the ones who see God most clearly and vividly and they never stop shouting, Holy, 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 which is the very term God has supplied for them to use. So do you see how the seraphim might even be righteously stunned by the casual approach that we can take to worship or grieve that we're not blown away by God's beauty or mystified that we should be so unmotivated to pursue Him in His infinite beauty and to pursue Him in His Word and to to know everything we can about Him now, to be hungry for knowledge about God. You see how that would be hard for angels to figure out these people claim to be followers of Jesus and it doesn't look like they care that much. That would be hard for them, I would guess. So the seraphim proclaim holy, holy, holy. It is threefold. It is used three times because it is a Hebrew device to express the supremely emphatic, what's most important. Rarely do we see it used twice. Truly, truly, Jesus would say, Amen, Amen. There's only three uses where it's used three times in the Bible. This one is the key one. It is threefold because there is one true God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is threefold because it covers the three familiar tenses, past, present, and future. God exists outside of time so that He tells us in His Word that His name is I Am. His name is a verb. you know anyone else who has a name that's a verb? And so what He is saying, I Am, includes the reality that He always has been, He always is, and He always will be, as we see in Revelation 4.8. A similar scene where the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And these probably highest of all orders of angels never cease to cry out God's mind-blowing holiness. Day and night they continually proclaim God's holiness and glory with such volume that the foundation's Shake. Can you envision this in your mind? This is ultimate stuff that we're headed for. We're going to see firsthand soon. This is the highest experience that we will ever encounter seeing God. the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. This is supernatural power, angelic voices that cause an earthquake. This is the unshakable kingdom shaking the shakable kingdoms of this earth. The house was filled with smoke Again, this is the Shekinah glory that led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and out Mount Sinai and through 40 years of wilderness wanderings and that filled Solomon's dedicated temple. It was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day when they needed shade from it in the day and the hot sun in the desert. And the Apostle Paul taught that angels are present when we worship What do you think they think of our worship? Does what we are doing look like what they are doing? And as a worship leader, that's always a challenge to me. Isaiah saw his sin then, the inward look. Now why does that happen? Why is it that as soon as Isaiah sees God, he has to think about sin? And it's because in God's holy, holy, holy presence there is the immediate recognition of guilt. All sin is immediately exposed before God by His holy light. In this case, Isaiah saw that His words, probably representative of His motives and heart and actions, were a disaster. He was unfit to dwell with the consuming fire. And many people today believe that they are basically good. If you were to ask most people in our culture, I am guessing that most of them would say, yeah, I'm basically good. All people are basically good by nature. They believe that their thoughts and motives and words and actions are mostly good. The Bible, however, and the the God revealed in it, does not hold this opinion that so many assume is true. In fact, if a person believes they are basically good, it is because they have seen very little of the truly holy, holy, holy God. Why do I say that? Look at this passage. Isaiah was probably one of the most, if not the most holy, people of his day. But what happened when he was given the smallest, quickest vision of the Lord? The piercing light of God's infinite holiness immediately revealed his sin and filth so that he was compelled to declare his own guilt out loud. No one else accused him or pointed it out. No, as soon as he saw God's glory and holiness, he involuntarily shouted his own sinfulness because we see ourselves most clearly in the light of God. And so he spontaneously pronounced the prophetic curse back on himself. Woe is me! And so we see that pride and confidence in our own goodness, supposed goodness and righteousness, are really only indicators that we have seen very little, if any, of a true glimpse of God. God. Instead, humility is one of the most rational attitudes we can ever have if we have seen even the slightest glimpse of God. Isaiah was cleansed with a burning coal from the altar, which points to Jesus whose holy sacrifice on the highest altar is the only means by which our sins may ever be forgiven so that we are prepared to live in the holy, holy, holy presence of God, the consuming fire. But then Isaiah also saw the mission, the outward look that we read in our last verse. After seeing God and almost dying as a result, Isaiah was willing to be sent by God to fulfill his mission. And his mission was going to be almost fruitless. I invite you to take time today or this week to read the rest of Isaiah. It's very short. And you'll see what a hard mission he's called as he's going to proclaim God's truth to cold and hard-hearted people. But having seen God, he would... Now he would be fortified to persevere even in the face of almost no visible success. We need this confidence as well in our own world today where it's not exactly easy to share the message of Jesus with people. They're not all wanting to hear. And finally, Isaiah saw Jesus. Who did Isaiah actually see on the throne? Isaiah saw Jesus. Now, where do I get that? Well, John writes later on in John chapter 12, 41 Isaiah saw these things because he saw his, and it's Jesus in the context, his glory and spoke of him spoke of Jesus who was to come referring to Jesus so Isaiah saw Jesus that's who he's seeing on the throne that is the future look and Jesus Christ is the holy 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 one seated on the throne but here is a personal question are we bored with God Does the subject or pursuit of God seem like one of the last things that we would have interest in doing? Do we have a desire to truly pursue God? You see, here's what I have found religion can be very boring. But oh, God Himself, if we're talking about the true God revealed here, is anything but boring. You have never met a more exciting subject, object, and you will never meet any subject or object more exciting than God. Our problem is that we are content with so little and we have this much knowledge of this God. Our problem is that we see so little of Him. God is the highest thought our minds can ever engage. You will never find a thought higher than God. God is the most glorious subject our hearts can ever embrace lovingly. God is the highest pleasure we can ever enjoy. He is Himself the source of infinite, perfect pleasure. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the whole reason for life right now, right here, in this difficult struggle. He's the whole reason for our lives. And one thing is absolutely certain one day soon, you and I will see God. It's the moment of moments. And seeing God will either be the most terrifying or the most blessed experience ever. Are you ready? Are we ready to see God? Soon, remember Reggie White? Defensive player in a four-point stance. He's up there on the line of scrimmage. He's waiting for the ball to be hiked. Finally, the defense and the offense come out of their huddles, come up. They make their formation on the line and Reggie keeps saying, Jesus is coming and I don't think he's ready, the guy that had been using Jesus' name in such terrible ways. When the ball was snapped, Reggie yelled, Here comes Jesus. And he tossed that offensive lineman like a rag doll, they said, and he went straight in and sacked the quarterback. It was such a display of power that his teammates were blown away. They had seen how strong Reggie was, but this seemed supernatural. So much so that for years they talked about it, and at a lot of games for years after that, guys who witnessed it would ask, Reggie, is Jesus going to play in this game? We want to see Jesus play again. My friend... Jesus is coming soon, very soon. Are we ready? Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you.